welcome to Radio Cachimbona season four. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives the fierce resistance happening in Southern Arizona, and it follows my journey as a movement lawyer in these borderlands. As a daughter of Salvadoran asylum seekers, I also uplift Central American voices and histories on this podcast. On this episode, I interview Kat Jutras of the Arizona Advocacy Network, and we discuss her work creating a holistic approach towards voter enfranchisement for people who have lost the right to vote after a felony conviction. And the reason why a holistic approach is important is because of all of the collateral consequences that come from conviction. So collateral consequences are the negative consequences that arise because of a criminal conviction but that are not the sentence itself right so the u.s heavily criminalizes people after their convictions by for example um taking away their right to vote restricting housing restricting employment and so predictably people's first concern isn't registering to vote particularly because marginalized people of color, which are so many of those who are incarcerated, aren't uh, traditionally (laughs) included in the system in any kind of intentional way, right? And politicians don't operate for their interests. And so many people already have a jaded uh, understanding and approach to voting, which, of course, I understand (laughs) after having voted for Biden. (laughs) And having done this, okay, no, no, let me let me not get into that. All right, so we we discussed the gaps in the Scotus Brnovich decision that I talked about in the last episode with Matt Garcia. The Brnovich decision allowed for two Arizona restrictions on voting to be upheld, and the majority opinion, you know, kind of painted this very rosy picture about how easy it is to vote in Arizona, and so. Kat Dutris and I talked about the gaps in the decision, what is not talked about, all the extra legal barriers that marginalized people face to voting. And specifically, we talk about how restitution fees play a huge role in stopping people from exercising their right to vote, which is why this episode is called This is a Poll Tax. If you would like to support the podcast and also if you're a lover of literature, then I recommend becoming a Patreon. You get first access to new episodes and also exclusive access to this season's literature review and the whole back catalog of past season lit reviews as well where these lit reviews are book club style chats with fierce women of color and I just finished reading The Inhabited Woman by Gio Navelli, which is a very interesting novel, that, that historical novel that follows a woman who joins the quote-unquote movement in the, it's a country that's presumably in Central America, but it's called Faguas, and it's presumably Nicaragua because Gio Navelli was a Nicaraguan Sandinista and worked undercover for the movement for a long time and actually the protagonist of the book is somebody who comes from the upper classes as she does and joins the the movement and a support of her country Faguas and it it was it's it was a fascinating read and I'm so excited to talk about it after having read her memoir about her actual work with the Sandinistas 
And um, next up is On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which I'm very excited to delve into and talk about the U.S. imperialist presence in Vietnam and the Vietnamese refugees and asylum seekers who are here um, and the communities that they've built. And it's going to be great. If you enjoy their critical analysis of the interviews and the more Arizona-focused and legal analysis focused episodes i do also think that there's something for everybody in the lit review so do recommend going to patreon.com and supporting me that way if you'd like to support but are not able to support monetarily another great way to support is to leave an apple podcast and review it really helps with visibility helps um, new people find the podcast also you sending the podcast to your friends and their friends always helps thank you as always to the my ride or die patrons who allow me to continue doing this work all on my own and i hope that you all enjoy this episode Thanks. I am very excited today to welcome Kat Jutras of the Arizona Advocacy Network. She is the Rights Restoration Program Manager, and she's here today to talk about the program that she's developing. It's a holistic approach aimed at helping people restore their rights after they lose the right to vote. But before we get more into the program, I just wanted to thank you, Kat, for coming onto the program and ask how you're doing today. Um, I'm doing pretty good. A little sad the sun's lost, but uh, overall pretty good. Oh, was it the NBA final this weekend? Or what is it? <laughs> Sorry, I don't follow sports. <laughs> I, I, I no no I'm a fair weather Suns fan um I was hanging out with some friends last night when this is the first time I've ever watched a game but I was trying to root for the Suns and uh they did not win <laughs> oh man well next time yeah yeah <laughs> all right yeah so great so you work to restore the rights of people who have lost their right to vote. So I wanted to explain to the Cachimbonas, when is it that somebody loses the right to vote? So um, in Arizona, it's usually when they've been convicted of a felony. Um, th- that is the most typical circumstance I've um, heard of, of when people have lost their right to vote. That is the predominant reason why folks I work with come to work with Azan or in the past before I was with Azan, uh, it was because they had a felony conviction. Okay, got it. And so your rights restoration program helps people to gain the right to vote back, right? It- Yes, essentially, yes. Um, that is our long-term goal. Um, the process in Arizona is extremely complicated, depending on the severity of um, 
how many felonies you have, when it was committed, your fines and fees and restitution are all factors that can aggravate the process, make it more complicated and more difficult. Um, so a lot of the work that we do is talking people through how the process works because it is not as simple as filling out an application and then just waiting. That is part of the process, but um, it's a, it's far more complicated than just checking a few boxes. And what are the things that make it more complicated, at least for people here in Arizona? So depending on when people are released and decide to pursue a petition for restoration of rights, there's a lot of things that can go really wrong. If you have been released on parole or probation and had a restitution that you can keep up with, can afford, that amount can hinder you from getting your rights back with multiple felony convictions. Um, sometimes even with single felony convictions, people have encountered that in the past of being a hindrance. Um, laws have changed here to make it a little easier for people with um, like marijuana convictions or single felonies. But if you fall into that category of having multiple felonies, your uh, restitution, fines and fees um, stacked on top of multiple charges can really complicate the process and make it um, almost impossible sometimes, depending on the total cost um, for you to get your rights back. Yeah, so it seems like this would disproportionately impact people who are poor. Absolutely. And what, what is the aspect of your program that makes it a holistic approach? So something that we're trying um, that really hasn't been done before, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background as well. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated person. Um, I have multiple felony convictions from when I was 18 years old. It's been over a decade. And this is still something mm -hmm. I am struggling with. And I have been trying to figure out how do I navigate this system with also a large amount of restitution. Um, I've gone to many clinics in the past. I've worked with pro bono lawyers and every single time the situation has gotten to a, a point of despair of where you feel very lost in the process. You don't know what's happening. If you don't have any um, background on like legal terminology or <laughs> filing paperwork or a motion or all these things that are typically just not taught on what to do when you are released or even just you're a normal person and don't have a law degree, um, uh, it complicates mm -hmm. things. It makes it difficult, um, particularly when you go to resources that are supposed to be helpful and you're somewhat discouraged by them because of the results. The goal that we're trying with our program is to make that less hopeless um, when you run into a barrier. It's coming up with solutions that can help you Resubmit a petition. Now that you have, um, you know, some job experience, you've built yourself up in the community. You're finding ways to connect with other folks through community service within your community. You're really getting an opportunity to build a better you rather than just kind of be left to the wind of, I don't know what to do next. So we're trying to come up with different ways to reach into the communities that we know have been affected disproportionately by felony convictions and voter disenfranchisement and really trying to drive home 
You don't have to remain silent. You can, there's other options to look into if you feel like, you know, maybe I'm not going to get my petition passed or maybe I've never even looked into having my rights um, restored. Just really doing some education within the community and direct outreach into um, spaces where there typically isn't um, information shared about how to get your rights back. Right. So what was the most difficult aspect of in the process of getting your voting rights restored? You mentioned that you had to go to multiple lawyers. What was what about the process made it so difficult? And also, it seems like there's some criteria that the state of Arizona looks at. You mentioned having a job, for example. What what is those? What are those criteria? So essentially, you're having to prove your worth in the community so you oh need to God, that's really terrible <laughs> yeah I mean I, I just don't think it's your requirement to vote no I mean the way I look at it is I've served my time I am a tax-paying citizen yes. I contribute I work mm-hmm. I, I work in nonprofit spaces but before that before I, I got mm-hmm. in I was working know, 50 hours a week like every other normal person who is underpaid and is doing the best they can um, you know, with a, a criminal background, it's very difficult in some spaces and you're constantly afraid of um, an employer finding out or disclosing the wrong information and for fear of losing your job. So um, mm-hmm. for me, it is still a process I am going through figuring out how to how do I make myself look like the best community member that I feel I am uh, to get my rights back. My first petition was denied with at the time, they wouldn't even give you a reason why your petition was being denied. It would just be, nope, um, now laws have changed and I can submit a new petition and they have to give me reasons. Now, unfortunately, and fortunately, I figured out that if you have restitution and you submit a petition, the likelihood of it being denied is extremely high. So working back on that is, okay, how much restitution do I have? How much of this is interest? How much of this has been sent to a collection agency? Because it's been a decade. So the complications are, you know, sometimes, and I'll use myself as an example here, is you'll have an amount of restitution. It gets lost in the system. You don't get notified. You move. People move around. They change jobs. So there's no real notification to you after you're out of the system, after you're off of probation or parole on what you're supposed to do. So if you're low income, which very much I have been the majority of my life, you don't think about it because it's an overwhelming number. And you're just like, I got to meet ends meet here. So I didn't think about it. And I just was like, okay. So they started garnishing my um, tax mm-hmm. return, my state tax return. I haven't seen it in years. Um, and I found out that it had been sent to a collection agency, whereas almost 20% interest accumulated on the mm-hmm. amount. So the amount that I originally was court ordered is now almost double through inflation oh <laughs> or not inflation, yeah. interest and time. Um, so now it's just. I have, I'm now dependent on federal legislation to be passed for my mm-hmm. rights to be restored. 
that is my option at this time with what our current Arizona laws are. And I am not the only person who is in this circumstance. There's no way to snap your fingers and make a, a huge amount of money appear and be paid to the state. It's just, unfortunately, <laughs> you don't have that type of magic. <laughs> but the process it, with the restitution amount is the biggest hindrance. And I think in my experience, all the petitions I've processed, that is the biggest component of what essentially will give someone their voting rights back. doesn't matter that they've paid into the system as far as paying their taxes or served their complete time or paid their fines and fees. The restitution component is what is held over your head until you pay every dime back. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it's a very it's very nefarious in terms of how the restitution fees are rolled out because you say that it's very difficult to know how to actually take the steps you need to pay the restitution. And mm-hmm. it just seems like it's a trap for people. Oh, it is. And people live in constant fear of their paycheck being garnished or their state taxes being taken. Or if you do start paying, then someone might come knock on your door for um, more money at some point or they increase the amount that they want. I mean, there's so much gray area and information of what you feel like could happen. Most of the experiences I had while incarcerated were pretty traumatic. As far as your interaction with the state and right. calling and getting answers, very mm-hmm. complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so you live in fear. Um, and an honesty, right. I look at it as a poll tax. This is a poll tax. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. I mean, you educate yourself and most of my friends who I met while incarcerated they became very educated about what life rights they lost when they got out. They knew what jobs they mm-hmm. couldn't have. They knew um, what housing they couldn't access. Yeah. They knew um, education mm-hmm. funding that was no longer on the table. Um, all these opportunities kind of fizzle out depending on your felony conviction or, or just the fact that you have a felony in this state, it complicates so many more things, including accessibility to get a fingerprint card. So your opportunity to work in like a hospital or a, a childcare center or mm. a school or any type of job that would, even an airport. These are things that really make it difficult Mm -hmm. if you want to try and pursue something like a professional career um, with a record. Now, the part of um, petitioning for your civil rights back is so that you can go through that process with a little less hindrance. But if you've got an insurmountable amount of restitution or debt, and then you're also trying to pay for all your basic living needs and expenses. One of these things becomes a priority over the other just to survive. Um, so as you're leaving the system, most of the people I know were pretty informed about what they couldn't do. They weren't informed about what they could do. And that's where I really would like to see some change and hoping our Mm. outreach inside of institutions um, and correctional facilities can be helpful 
to inform people that you do have options when you get out. And there are steps to make that process a bit easier. That includes educating folks about if you have restitution, get this set up, get this taken care of because the state will not do it for you. Um, or, hey, you need housing assistance, food assistance, um, education right. assistance. You need um, basics. I mean, truly, when you walk out, you walk out with nothing. Just to have that information start going into the system is, I think, a much better place than right. where we currently are, where it's very difficult to get information like that in. Um, so we're going to try. Mm -hmm. Right. So is this, this is a part of the program that you're developing. It's kind of like a know your rights style yes. program for people who are incarcerated. Yes, very much so. Know what rights you don't have and know what rights you can get back. You know, there are some folks who I think will struggle with the concept of voting, not because they don't want to participate, is that they feel discouraged that things will actually change. And that's kind of a consistent right. theme right, I think right, right. all new voters have. But when you talk to people who have been in the system, you realize right away the things that should change, mm -hmm. particularly commu within communities of color. Like what? For example, there was a study done by the ACLU, I think a year ago, um, last year, I was taking a look at it. We were talking about the disproportionate rates of people of color who have longer incarceration sentences, um, more trumped up um, felony convictions um, in comparison to um, white Arizonans. As a, Knowing that, as a voter, you have have control over who the um, DA could be. You have a voice and funding of the police. Um, you have so much more options of what could change to change those right. statistics. But as someone who doesn't have the ability to vote, you have no power. You feel very powerless over trying to change something so big that drastically affects your community on a daily basis. Right. And I think that the holistic approach that you're trying to take that takes into account the fact that to actually get people to get their voting rights restored, they need to get their basic needs tended to first, just as a practical reality. And it seems like actually a huge part of this work also is just kind of a baseline get out the vote information campaign about what about why voting is something particularly that marginalized people of color should exercise their vote, their right to do, because you're dealing with really years and years and years of marginalization from the state and, you know, people's lived experiences that tell them, well, the vote has been available to certain people and, you know, certain people have gone and especially like the black community has consistently voted for the Democratic Party and been incredibly loyal and, you know, very little has changed for people materially. And so that's that must be like a huge part of the educational component that you're trying to communicate to folks inside. 
Very much so, as well as encouraging them to inspire their their friends and family, brothers, sisters, whoever they can to vote for them on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that they should vote for their presidential pick or their gubernatorial selection, but it means advocating for them through voting. When there is a ballot initiative that says, you know, hey, we want to we, we want to completely negate the restitution from being able to restore someone's right to vote. That would be fantastic to have a bunch of people who have, right. uh, you know, either close proximity or distance proximity relationship wise to someone who's formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated and say, hey, I want them to be able to speak for themselves. I want them to, you know, mm-hmm. have a voice to advocate for their community that they're now unfortunately part of, Um, you know, coming out of um, like any type of um, jail or prison, you are now part of a club. Um, It's not a good one, but you've, you have a shared trauma experience as well as you are now disenfranchised. You are now not able to participate within the process of democracy. And as a taxpayer, right. that's extremely infuriating. I know you keep bringing up people who are taxpayers, but isn't it true that everybody should have the right to vote, regardless of your employment status or if you pay taxes? I agree. I think if you are a resident of this country, you should be able to participate. But I really speak for myself here because I look at um, a place like Washington, D.C., who is disenfranchised. Right. Um, they are tax-paying United States citizens, and they are not mm-hmm. guaranteed represent- representation at this point in time. That is exactly right. how I feel as someone who is a taxpayer. Mm-hmm. I am a U.S. Mm-hmm. citizen. I am a Latina. You know, in Arizona, like, that's uh, something that I've had to say um, to like justify my reasons for wanting to vote when I talk mm. to people about this. Um, you know, I think that there's some, uh, mm. association with my race that people go, Oh, you must be illegal or you must have, you know, no, I, I was adopted and brought to the U S I've been a citizen. I've been paying taxes my whole life and I've never been able to vote uh, because of, a couple of mistakes I made when I was 18. And there are many people who fall into the right. system at a very young age and are somewhat forced back into the cycle of it because they don't know that there is another way or there is a path um, with a little bit more resistance, but, you know, is the legal pathway of living life. It's difficult, though, because not every community has the same upward mobility to educate themselves or just be given information on what what comes next. What do I do now? Right. I, I just I recently was reading the Scotus Bronovich decision about the Arizona voting restrictions and the majority court mm-hmm. opinion really made it sound like voting was very easy. It was kind of like a very condescending opinion about how, yeah, I mean, all the voting takes is 
getting in your car and driving somewhere and then standing in line. And maybe those are things that you should be forced to do. And it's not a big deal. And completely absent from this conversation was from that conversation, that analysis was how incredibly difficult it is to regain the right to vote once you have had a felony conviction, let alone also how difficult, how Mm -hmm. people who are in jail or people who have misdemeanor convictions, but not felony convictions or people who were accused of a felony, but then were eventually acquitted still have their right to vote. And I know that there's, there's serious access issues with people who are in jails where people can be waiting out misdemeanor convictions or awaiting trial for felony charges. And it, this is a population of people that is just so consistently forgotten that even in a conversation about what the Arizona voting structure is, mm-hmm. they're completely left out and nobody even blinks an eye. I completely agree. It's a huge problem. Um, and part of me has, has always thought of that as the ultimate way to deny people change, right? I mean, they are, if you are in jail awaiting trial, you have not been convicted. You are innocent until proven guilty. That is right, that's what they say. <laughs> that's what they say, but that's not how you're treated. Exactly. You're tr- treated as if you are guilty and incarcerated as such until you're proven innocent. That is mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. That. Particularly if you are not of a income level that can get mm-hmm. you out on bail or, you know, right, right, right. The, the whole bail situation is so uh, classist, you know? So you're leaving a population that cannot afford or has been denied bail, who has not been proven guilty in a court of law or by a jury of their peers and is still being denied Mm -hmm. the basic information of, of who is even on the ballot. Can I get my ballot here? Uh, is there a voting booth here? I have not been convicted of a crime yet. I should still be able to vote. Now, to me, it makes sense why you don't want this population voting. Who are on these ballots are judges. <laughs> One, uh, we do vote for judges. And, um, you know, most mm-hmm. people aren't comparing who, which judge you get until you're sitting in court and you're like, okay. Now, at this point in my life, I am aware of judges and what their track records are um, because it it's very telling sometimes to see mm-hmm. the type of conviction mm-hmm. rates. Um, you know, some judges need to be pretty consistent with for years. Um, you know, if you are a if you're pending uh, trial and you're ha- you happen to fall into an election year and November third hits and you have not been convicted, you can still vote. Now, I think people who are on the outside of that that doesn't make a lot of sense to them. I think there's an assumption of if you're in jail, you did something wrong, you're guilty, and that is it. That's not the case. There's many people who have minor you know, probation violations for misdemeanor convictions that get, you know, 30 days in jail. There's minor offenses that are, you know, that can lead you to jail all at any time, really. Um, 
So those people are in there. They're not pending any type right. of felony conviction. They're, they're being denied the right to vote. Right. And yeah, I totally agree that people don't grasp how jail really is a punishment system for people who are poor because Mm -hmm. you, if you're there awaiting trial, that's because you could not afford bail or usually, usually, or you you couldn't afford a lawyer, (laughs) couldn't afford a lawyer and, or you couldn't afford bail. And so you're forced to wait out your trial. And that fact has absolutely zero to do with how guilty you are of what you've been accused of. It's literally just about money. And, and I also think that it's troubling how much as a society we've come to accept what you lose upon, upon conviction of a felony. I mean, really uh, what we're talking about is like upon uh, being in state custody, really, because as you say, people are treated like they're guilty until mm-hmm. they're proven not. You know, you mentioned earlier, it's not just the right to vote that you lose upon getting a felony conviction. You are shut out of a lot of employment opportunities, housing opportunities, um, state benefits. And, you know, I think we should really, especially like, I mean, these other collateral consequences, I think we we'll have to talk about in a whole other episode, but like with what we're talking about right now with voting, why, why would we ever be okay with taking somebody's right to vote? Do you know what I mean? Like that is one person, one vote. This is what they teach us about in civics class as children. And like that, that is supposed to be kind of a sacred tenant on which this democracy is founded. And it really troubles me that that is also where we're at in terms of thinking about carcerality and punishment too. It's like, as soon as you get in touch with the system, anything can happen to you and we're okay with that, you know? And it's like, as you say, it's like, you did your time. So these, I call them, they're they're called collateral consequences because these are punishments that are happening in addition to the punishment that the state and the jury of your peers or the judge has decided to give you. These are all things that we've decided to do in addition to that. And like, I, I just think we're at a place where it feels like mm-hmm. individuals have to prove their right to vote when it's like, why is that? Like this, this, this state should not be allowed to take our right to vote away. And we should be asking why does the state feel like it's appropriate to take anybody's right to vote away? Exactly. And I think, you know, understanding that there are over 6 million people in America who are barred from voting due to felony convictions. Imagine if 6 million people voted. That would, I mean, these people voted. It would change the outcome of an election. Just this population alone would completely change the outcome of an election. Um, They would have to be earned voters. You would have to go to these people and like really talk to them about things that have to change because they've experienced some of the worst conditions in this country. Um, Truly, other than ICE facilities, um, prisons, instances Mm -hmm. um, that our state run are some of the worst facilities in this country you can end up in. 
And yeah, particularly in Arizona. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. just Arizona. the fact that we incarcerate people in heat conditions that are not um, like humane. That is by far yep. one of the wildest experiences of my right. life was sitting inside a, a prison cell with um, two other people in right. the middle of summer because of overcapacity. There was no air conditioner. It was a swamp cooler, but three people in an eight by 10 cell with one, mm-hmm. uh, one bathroom. That is what I would, I, I think some people would right. consider third world conditions right. um, in the United States. Yes. And yes, exactly. And um, the U.S. prisons, detention centers and jails are truly some of the worst in the country. Uh, sorry, not in the country, in the world. Well, yes, in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I know this because I have done human rights work and and know about the conditions of prisons and jails and immigration detention centers elsewhere. And they're not pretty anywhere. But, you know, I, I just think this moment, this this lie about American exceptionalism is like kind of coming to the fore more and more um, because, you know, because, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you know, Trump and and his loyalists have this, like, you know, have this message about making America great again and like America the first and American exceptionalism. And, you know, that kind of that the pointedness of that rhetoric has, has helped, I think, to illuminate the contradictions actually, and how there are the poor marginalized people of color in this country experience the type of treatment and conditions that, that many rich people in this country think nobody in this country experiences. They think, as you say, it's like quote unquote third world thing. And it's not. It's very much a United Statesian thing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you look at European countries who've really taken an in-depth look at their correctional facilities. And some of these conditions are like college dorm room. They are just very different. Mm -hmm. There's educational opportunities within them. So people come out with some type of job mobility. You have, you know training experience and um at Perryville they're using women's slave labor to harvest eggs and make clothes and everything inside the prison is run by slave labor um you know there are so many things you know fundamentally wrong with how these facilities operate um what they expose people to during COVID Mm -hmm. you know so many things wrong internally with these things for me there is no reform there is abolition that is exactly yeah that is how i feel and i think unless someone from norway or sweden or mm-hmm. somewhere in scandinavia was to come over and say you know what i'm going to transform all of these places to be our a little ikea plate you know pods <laughs> and there's a university now on campus that's again that's that is uh, abolition in my mind in comparison where we are right now. Um, the point is, is that, you know, there are over 200,000 people with felony convictions in Arizona who are completely barred from the process. 
53% of that population have completed their sentence. They're done. They've served their time. So over half of that population cannot cannot vote, regardless of them having paid their debt to society, completed their conviction, time has gone by. It's it's not something that they feel like they can ever be involved in for the majority. And I think um, one of the instances I'll use is um, my fiance's father had a felony conviction from the 70s, um, has never voted in his life, um, but he's wanted to. He has wanted to his whole life. Mm-hmm. And when I met my partner, um, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about it and I said, will you let me look at your paperwork? Just like, mm-hmm. let me, give me 15 minutes. I took a look. I checked the law. I made a couple phone calls and I registered him to vote that day. He voted for the first time in his life in the 2020 election. He had no idea wow. that he could have had his rights back for, I mean, almost wow. six years. The law had changed relatively in a recent time, but there were two different voting cycles he could have participated in, but had been disenfranchised for 40 years. I mean, that's almost, well, yeah, it was the late 70s. So yeah, yeah a over 40 years. Yeah, 40 that years, is the yeah. type of person that I just need to take a look at their paperwork. <laughs> that is right. something he had truly talked about many times when presidential election didn't go the way he wanted. He's like, I wish I could have voted in that. Um, and it's such a small conversation that you know took a little time to get straightened out. And he sent me a, a picture of himself when he got his um, voter ID card in the mail. That I have, I, it gave me so much pride to just know that he felt empowered and he paid his debt to society. Yeah. He didn't have any fines or fees or restitution. Um, this man started a business and ran it successfully for 20 years. You know, like these are contributing members of society. They are regular people who just want a voice. They just want their voice heard. And that to me is the basis of America is that you, everyone gets to be heard. Everyone gets to, you know, be part of the process. That's the American dream, I think, is to start from nothing come up but you are if all of those opportunities and things are taken from you what's your motivation to build up your motivation to do better when you know you have barriers on top of you that can limit your potential and he was very embarrassed um i think that's also a factor um when people come out and you start to have you know if you're able to have those conversations with people about hey you're going to try to get your voting rights back it's People don't want to have that conversation immediately because, again, primary needs are first and foremost. I got to figure out how to pay my bills. I got to figure out a place to live. I need transportation to and from my job. Those are primary things. Um, But when we have, and when in the past, when we've, I've worked with people who start this process, it's like trying to convince someone to go to the dentist, right? (laughs) It's, they don't want to talk about it. It's very hypnotizing most of the time. And sometimes right, decades right. have passed. So their memory isn't as good. And most of the bad things or 
are what internalized um, are the mm-hmm. memories that they have. So it's not, um, you know, this like fairy tale story of you tell me and I fill out this paperwork and we just get it taken care of. It's no, we have to build your story as you and not as your past who you currently are and what you've done to get to this point. The first few um, documents of a petition are just numbers. It's how much, when did you convict this crime or when did you commit this crime? When were you released? Uh, How many convictions did you have? Um, It's all of those numbers, right? Right. It's never, how are you? Yeah. -hmm. Yeah, It's cold data. And it's not until you get to like the third or fourth page of the petition where you're able to fill in anything about yourself in these tiny little boxes that you're supposed to convey. Please let me vote. Please let me feel whole. Um, Because at least for me, that is a missing part that I will not quit fighting for until I'm able to have a say. In making some real changes here with my vote. Um, I wholeheartedly believe if this population of people were to be given the right to vote, I I would bet at least 60% would show up to vote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is a huge population that could win an election. Right. And say, fortunately, because of where the total U.S. voter turnout is 60% would be very, very high turnout, actually. (laughs) And it would. Oh, yeah. It's way above what I think the um, like general population would be. But the conversations that people have post-release, I mean, they're like, that was messed up. That was, I I don't know. I mean, you don't talk about it. You talk about it like a war story almost Mm, of. mm That was traumatic. I can never tell someone some of the things that I witnessed in there right. or some of the things that I saw. And, um, you know, just things that are inside, you will never be able to translate as well. So those things are shared with the community of like, man, that food was bad. Or you remember getting paid uh, 10 cents? <laughs> I mean, just to know that you were part of slave labor is within the United States is yeah. ter- is like something I still have to mm-hmm. like reason with myself. I was doing slave labor against my will. I, I just, and I had to pay taxes on it. <laughs> you know, they take taxes out of your money. You're in prison for things you can't vote on. Uh, so like, it just kind of continues like, wow. um, but I do feel like this population communicates very well. It is the thing that when people get activated around this type of thing, you become very passionate about it. There's some folks I've talked to um, at other organizations who um, I know have a, a criminal record. And we talk about it all the time. Like, do you want to get in? Like, how do we get in? Because we're trying to figure out ways to get into jails and into prisons, you know, legally, of course, to talk to people about this. Because now we've seen on the outs what you can do, um, how to navigate the system outside, because it still follows you when you get out. 
And we want to let people know how to do it successfully, how to get back, how to no longer have this burden on you of feeling like, you know, you're still being trailed or watched or you're still a number. Um, And that number, I think, is one of the like most traumatizing things. Um, You will never forget that number. I can't ever forget that number Mm. when people... I was working with someone a couple of years ago on a petition and I asked them, you know, for their basic information. And I'm like, do you happen to know your, and before I even finished it, he ran out his DOC number. And um, because we know this is like the number that is where all of our information is, all of our time, all of our um, working record. um, If we wanted commissary, like that was the number. So that number just kind of becomes ingrained into your identity. And the longer time you serve, the more that number just becomes an acceptable way to be identified. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, this is something that the U.S. government does a lot. And so I see the cold data point because this, these are the numbers, as you say, the numbers, numbers that they collect about people and they define people. And I really appreciate that you are the human that people are actually going to talk to and the person that's going to convince people that they do have some semblance of civil rights remaining. And I, I, your work is so, so critical for that reason. And you, you mentioned that you're, that it's difficult to get into jails and prisons and it, it really, as an advocate, it really truly is. It's, kind of mind-boggling to me, you know, in a place that is supposed to be a quote-unquote free country, how really difficult it is to get into these institutions if you're trying to help people. So what are your agreements currently with like the jails and the prisons about your Mm -hmm. program? Well, right now we're still trying to figure some of those out. I mean, some of the relationships we hope to build are with probation and officers because as people come out those are going to be the direct connections that they have to make on the outside they're going to be i mean they're supposed to be you know in theory probation and parole officers are supposed to be a resource we're hoping to get to those folks first and say hey here's our card call us if you need anything meet what we mean it we will try and figure it out. We have plenty of connections to figure out with housing or food or, um, you know, legal connections, resources, things like that are what people need, not even, not even just to use, but to know that they exist for them and they're not going to have to beg a parole or probation officer and call them five times to get basic answer on them. I think the the bigger challenge is going to be getting into facilities. Um, we do have a uh, outreach program through like mail because that, that is by far the major um, communication tool is like physical mail um, that people can somewhat afford. Phone calls right. are very expensive. Um, yes. But we do have a toll-free um, line people can call as well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. sending mail in is what makes you feel a little whole. <laughs> it means that someone cares about you when you get mail. Um, so we're going to try an outreach program through mail to see if right. that generates any response. Like I said, this program is very new. I'm building it. I'm still writing 
because I want it to be right. I want it to be right from the get-go and not something that, you know, we have to go back and make major corrections with. Um, but yeah, we have, we have some really brilliant, intelligent people on staff who are brainstorming wizards who are helping me come up with what's the most realistic way that we can get information in and take that and get back out and do things um, to start the process moving on the outside. Um, I think the process of getting your rights back, it starts the day you get out. It starts with that first decision of what am I going to do with this like new you know, freedom mobility of I'm not confined in this space. There's so many things, right? To just, you know, you want to go eat good food. <laughs> the first thing you want to do. Right. But, you know, most people are walking with less than $300. Um, mm, and that's I'm what sure. um, buy. That's it. Some people, if they haven't figured out like housing right. or who's picking them up, you get on a like a like a minivan type thing and you're dropped off at the mall. Um that happens. That is the reality. It can be the first call. Why would you get dropped off at a mall? That sounds always the worst place to get dropped it's off. It's terrible. Um, but honestly, I think the why wouldn't you get dropped off at a, like a train station or a bus station? The reason I think is because of like bus connections or something. I don't know why it's the mall, but that's I have heard in past people get dropped off. So, and the only ID you have says that you are a released prisoner. (laughs) So good luck applying for jobs with that. Right. It's it's difficult. It's an immediate, you definitely need to check that box on that application if you're showing this ID. So, I mean, even getting a new ID, which is now going to be another barrier for people to vote outside of, you know, felony convictions, but with the new voter restrictive laws, um, you know, so it's not only just, you know, felony convictions, that is definitely what I specialize Mm. in, but the overall voting process here in Arizona is under attack just in general, just to put that out there crystal clear. And it makes what we do harder. Uh, The more restrictive things become, the harder it becomes for the communities that we serve, particularly I think indigenous Mm. um, black and people of color. Like this is the, the system has always been broken for us. It has never worked or functioned well to serve our needs. And now with, you know, at least we have some opportunities through this petition process to give back some of those rights that were wrongfully taken. It's just keeping people hopeful while the process happens and keeping them if the result isn't what they hoped. Right. Mm. I know it, it's, I can't even imagine how demoralizing it must have been to get that first rejection of your application to vote. And I really appreciate that people are going to have people like you advocates to, to stand with them and move with them through this process that has not been made easy. And is it in a larger context, as you say, of, of Arizona's right to vote being under attack and, I've I've been reflecting on how funny it is that we're talking about a right, like what, what, like, what does that word mean? It means that we're entitled to it, that we deserve it point blank. No, there's no, like, there shouldn't really be eligibility criteria because it is a right. And 
it's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. so wild to think about all of these obstacles that you're describing that actually like make it a really weak right it's, like, it's really diluting this this fundamental right that we have that as we've been talking about is allegedly the foundation of a fair democracy well and and i find it just incredibly suspicious that <laughs> most of the communities that demand the change are being the ones suppressed that is by far i think right. the most common thread that i've seen um in past work where i'm working across multiple states or i'm you know pre covid i was traveling up and down the west coast doing voter registration work and by far that is the most common thread is communities of color are under attack from accessibility to mail-in ballots or um, actual voting locations. Mm -hmm. Those voting locations are being produced and staffed with people who don't have experience in the Mm -hmm. process of voting or volunteer run. So uh, yeah, exactly. You know, perfect information. I appreciate all the volunteers, but they are volunteers. Yeah. But there should be, you know, some type of trained staff. Yeah. 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 At these facilities who are handling Very important. You know, confidential state <laughs> ballots, you know, this is by far the most important thing that affects people for years. The election should be taken seriously. Election protection should be taken very seriously. Handling of ballots should be taken very seriously. I mean, at all times. And what we've seen in Arizona is by far the, it's crazy. It just is crazy. There is no other word that I can think of that details what has been going on in our elections and our audits and our overall voting restrictive bills that I can say other than this is crazy. And I'm scared that people will not wake up to see this before it's too late. The one thing that I do want to say that people can do if you're disenfranchised is you can offset your vote. And that has been by far one of my biggest missions in life is I can't vote, but I am not prohibited from trying to convince and register as many people to vote as possible. Getting your friends and getting your family to show up to vote, that Mm -hmm. call, that text, that personal touch of saying, hey, just wanted to remind you that there's a a local election happening and I think you should go vote. Um, The justice of the, the peace is open. That person can over uh view like or have some eye on um eviction moratoriums and like you know things that are meaningful directly in your community like those matter yeah the legalization of weed we exactly on that this past election exactly that i mean that's a game changer and potentially and that's another community we're trying to serve with this program is working with folks who have marijuana convictions. Um, You can have your uh, convictions set aside. You can have that not be a barrier for you anymore. Um, It's more simple than you think. It's a couple of forms. That's what we're helping you do. And that's it. It's simple, as you say, but then it's also like not that simple. (laughs) That's why you need to create the program. You know what I mean? Like, I, I hear what you're saying you don't want to discourage people, do you know what I mean? But it's also like, let, let's recognize the intentionality of how difficult they're making it to, one, vote, and then also if you get your vote 
your right to vote taken away to get it restored. I mean, these are intentionally difficult things. And it's not to say that we can't supersede it as a community. We will, and you are. You are helping us do that. And so, yeah, I just want to say thank you for your work. Don't want you to discount too much how important your work is. Yeah, I guess I should say it's easy in comparison if you have a more complex where you have like multiple felony convictions and you're going got through it, a deep petitioning process. A marijuana conviction is a walk in the park in comparison. It's really something that you could get got resolved like within a week. Good. I hope people know that because we need to get those convictions expunged and then all the mm-hmm. Black Latinx folks, other people of color who have been the victims of the war on drugs need to be getting their business savvy on so that they can get their monies from this blooming marijuana industry that right now predominantly white people are profiting off of. Exactly. And part of our you know future outreach is working with dispensaries. It's working yes. with um, you know, canna friendly um, businesses and putting that out there mm-hmm. in the community. You've been able to profit legally off of the backs of our community and don't get it twisted. We know we're, we're aware of what's going on and trust and believe that many of the BIPOC communities know that the uh, dispensary licenses are held by predominantly white people. And Mm. that has to change. That has to change for any type of reparation to like process to be started and what has been done to the community Mm -hmm. because of the war on drugs. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. that conversation is a whole other looking at, you know, how that's impacted immigration and destabilization of other countries and all of that. But the war on drugs in the United States and focused in Arizona can be completely different with marijuana going forward. It does not have to be what it has been in the past of demonization of people of color and usage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And the legalization of recreational marijuana is really like the first step because as someone who grew up in the Northern California, I will say that Arizona has miles and miles and miles to go in terms of the real cultural acceptance of it. Do you know what I mean? Because the stigma that is attached because of the decades of criminalization is still present. And this is kind of like beyond the scope of this conversation, but I just think that um, that's kind of like the next focus point that we need to, that we need to unpack is like kind of making sure that like culturally we accept the law and the books, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's such a mental health aspect to, I think, yes. all of this, all of this from incarceration to the process of transition for your rights back to the usage of marijuana, like all, all of these things yeah. are, are so intersectional with yes. mental health and what happens to communities after incarceration or criminalization or whatever it may be, there is trauma internalized into every community of color based off of over-policing, criminalization of usage, Mm -hmm. or just the fact of like your 
you're limited. Um, if you have a uh, felony conviction and all of this, your experience within the prison and the jail and the whole process of it is so just, you don't know what to do almost. Yes. Well, it's paralyzing. And that's something that we're trying to also factor in is how can we deal with the mental health aspect of this? How can we make people feel, you know, I went through years of therapy and I'm happy to say I'm still in therapy because it is not a a quick solution. So much of who I am now has been shaped by nonprofits like AZAN Mm -hmm. and nonprofit organizations who have helped me pull myself out self-educate myself. All of what I've done and where I am right now is because I had help. Um, You know, I like to say there's some self-motivation in there too, but you don't get anywhere without help. And I was fortunate enough to have family to come me up. Had I had that factor, my life could be completely different now. Um, so I think it's important to realize that your community can serve as your family if that's not an option for you. There are organizations, there are people within our program who want to help you get back up. You do not have to stay down or feel lesser than regardless of your lived experience. Things change. People change. It's the systems and laws that seem to yes. not change and not catch up with how society evolves. Um, that's, I think our biggest hindrance besides the restitution is that laws just haven't changed or really been evaluated in a way that mm-hmm. has allowed for more progress to happen. I think really taking this full circle, the laws haven't changed because of how effective voter disenfranchisement has been. I was going to mention this earlier, but the, the Florida Bush versus Gore election would have been decided differently if Mm -hmm. there wasn't the ability to strip people with felony convictions of their right to vote. You know, that, that alone would have changed. And and as you say, I mean, you know, the Arizona election was won by thousands of votes and that is the population of people who are currently, who are, in jail and like being obstructed from the right to vote or people who have had the right to vote taken away because of felony convictions and really making one person, one vote as true as possible, I think is the only way for there to be any kind of meaningful change in the law. Yeah. I come, I, I think society really needs to evaluate how we treat human beings at all levels, yes. whether that's undocumented, yeah. documented, BIPOC, whatever we need to really take a look at how we treat human beings for the long run and not this you're raised you work you die that type of you know sad you know look at life is there's so much that happens within a yeah. year there's so much that can change for someone um and, and turning your life around you know, is difficult. There's no doubt about that. Particularly if you come out of like a systemic culture that is, this is what it is. It hasn't been different. But to just find that there are different ways to treat people, but dignity, you know, like that is by 
far, I think, something that the system has never even tried. Mm -hmm. What do we, what would this place look like if we treated people with dignity and respect as a human being? You know, there is, I, I do believe that you should be punished if you do something wrong, but that consequence should not be lifelong. And, you know, I'm not talking about murder, severe capital offenses, but what I'm talking about is theft or marijuana usage, or these are not, they should not be lifelong convictions, but they become that when you are disenfranchised from a process or left out of the, you know, of the table, Uh, you know, you become an outcast almost of the process. And that's not being treated with dignity. That's not being treated with respect. That's being completely negated from it. And it's not how the United States should be. That is not America, how I've ever learned it to be. And it's a different experience for everybody here. But once you go through this process, you will never see this country the same. You will recognize immediately what it's like to be treated as a second-class citizen. Right, right. Well, thank you, Kat, so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your personal experiences and your work experiences with the listeners. I've had you here for about an hour, so I don't want to keep you for too long. Is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to share? Other, other than if any of your listeners have friends or family or themselves are, you know, interested in regaining their rights, you can always reach out to us at the Arizona Advocacy Network or Foundation. We're happy to help you, really, no matter what your circumstances, we're happy to take a look. We have legal experts who are who are willing and able to help us um, navigate any complex challenges with your case. And it doesn't matter if it was five years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. It doesn't matter. You deserve to have a voice and you are valued in this community regardless telling you that um, every human being deserves to be treated with respect and have a voice in how the process works. So we'd like to help you if you're out there listening. And I just want to thank you so much for having me on your podcast and, and really giving space to this work that I truly have tried to dedicate my whole life to. I will not stop fighting until everyone is free. Um, and I hope People know that there are other advocates like myself out there who will keep fighting for you, Mm. regardless if you're up to that task right now. Don't worry. We're we're still going hard for you. Oh my gosh, I just got chills. So thank you so much. And I hope everybody takes Kat's words to heart. Thank you so much. And hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Thank you so much. Bye.